All right, well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts for a while, uh, and and this morning we are beginning our series through it, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses in Acts today, Acts 1, 1 through 5. If you are using the, the blue Uh, ESV Bibles and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 909. The title of our sermon is Alive and Well, and the key words for our worshipers in training are Jesus, Kingdom, and Promise. The book Gulliver's Travels, written by Jonathan Swift, is a first-person fictional narrative of Lemuel Gulliver, a surgeon and a sea captain, and four adventures that he takes to remote regions of the world. In his first adventure, Gulliver is the only survivor of a uh, a, a devastating shipwreck, and he swims to the nation of Lilliput, where he he awakes, having been tied up by the people who inhabit this land. And the people, if you don't know, are about six inches tall. And the, they indulge in absurd customs. They get embroiled in ridiculous debates. And they are at war with uh, their neighboring country, all because of an argument that started over how to properly crack an egg. After waking and initial introductions, the... The Lilliputians search Gulliver, and, uh, and they begin to wonder at how, how he uses the different tools and items that they find on his person. At uh, one point, uh, they, he has to explain to them the purpose of his hat. They have absolutely no idea what his pistols are used for and are quite terrified when he demonstrates by shooting one off into the air. And they they think at one point that his pocket watch is a kind of deity that he worships. And you can surely think of of other such tales where one person or perhaps a group of people misunderstand the purpose for which some tool or item exists. Perhaps you yourself have misused such things. I read an article uh, this week from USA Today entitled, 13 things you've been using wrong your entire life. And the list included things like your dishwasher, your cell phone charger, your grill, your vacuum robots, and even sunscreen. Now sometimes we misuse a thing, and it brings about little to no consequence. Or at least not that we experience. But other times we might use something incorrectly, and it's to our great peril. And so that raises a question for us this morning. For what purpose was the book of Acts written? Why Acts? Why does it exist? Broadly, Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God for our teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. He also says in Romans, so that's uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. He also says in Romans 15 that Scripture is for our instruction, for our endurance 
and for our encouragement. And so that is certainly very broadly true of all Scripture, but it's also helpful to ask, well, why, why any particular book of Scripture was written? As it concerns Acts, many seem to view Acts as a handbook or an instruction manual for church life. Um, in other words, many, they, they seem to believe that Acts was written primarily to explain how churches ought to function. So it's, see what the apostles did in the early church, and you go and do likewise. And to some extent, that is true. But when we begin to use the book to answer just a bunch of practical questions without taking a step back to consider its, uh, maybe its primary purpose, we misstep. So... Sometimes the book is used to, to answer questions like this, and, and this seems to be the primary motive, right? So should, should we be speaking in tongues, understanding such a spiritual gift to be a present reality in the life of the church, and specifically as a sign of having received the baptism of the Spirit? Should we be putting hospitals out of business, allowing our, our healing shadows to fall upon the sick and infirm? Or have, have those miraculous gifts those sign gifts ceased. Or maybe we ask questions like, how should churches govern themselves by congregational or elder rule? Should churches practice pedo-baptism or credo-baptism, right? The baptism of infants or the baptism of professing believers only? What do deacons do? How should churches engage in local and foreign missions and evangelism? How does the church relate to civil magistrates? Perhaps you have a question in your mind that you, we could add to this list. But we, we have this list of questions that the book of Acts certainly touches on. And I don't believe that Acts leaves us in the dark regarding any of these questions or, or others that we might ask. But it is my contention that this is a misguided view and use of the book. If we see the book to function primarily as this uh, owner's manual, if you will. If we approach the book with an instruction manual mentality, then we're going to miss its central aim. And if we miss the central aim, we're going to answer those questions usually incorrectly. And so we will end up profiting very little from the book, or we may even fall into serious error to our great harm or others. So in answering the question, what is the book of Acts for, we could ask, well, what is the book of Acts about? Now, if you look at the ESV here, I I don't know if it's in every single copy that you have, but in mine, it says what? The Acts of the Apostles. Many commentators take the same approach, and they focus on what you could call the human agency that's presented in the book. The focus is on what the early church did. It's the Acts of the Apostles. Others, attempting to focus a bit more on the divine agency presented in the book, they describe it as something like the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I would say that this second title of sorts is much closer to the mark, but but even that isn't quite right on its own. For what does the author say? And we're going to look at this a little bit more, in a bit more detail in in a bit, but I want to observe this first verse, the very first sentence of the book of Acts references a previous and companion volume, 
which the author says is all about what? What Jesus began to do and teach. What is implied in this opening verse of Acts, therefore, is that what follows in these pages is an account of what Jesus continued to do. Now, we'll address in a minute, began to do, continued to do, what's the dividing line there? But for now, we'll say this, as as many of you likely know, the first book that he mentions here in verse 1 is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the historian doctor who traveled with Paul on several of Paul's missionary journeys, Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And together, Luke and Acts form a two-part work addressed to uh, one man named Theophilus which just means lover of God, if you were wondering. And in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke tells Theophilus that relying on eyewitness accounts, he desired to write for him an orderly account narrating the things that had been accomplished among them. And in Acts 1, 1, he summarizes those things as all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up, referring to the resurrection and ascension of Christ from the earth. So Luke Acts is about what Jesus began to do and teach before he was taken up and after. Luke describes what he did before he was ascended to heaven. Acts describes what he did after he was ascended into heaven. Another way you could say this is that Luke's gospel records the acts of Jesus during his life on earth as the incarnate, suffering servant of God, publicly and personally. The book of Acts describes what this same Jesus continued to do, now resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven as the rightful king of the universe. The significance of this, the significance of Jesus as the primary actor in Acts cannot be overstated. The late John Stott wrote this in his commentary on Acts. He says, there's a little bit of a lengthy quote here. He says, the contrast between the two books, between Luke and Acts, is between the two stages of ministry of the same Christ. He goes on, he says, It is no exaggeration to say that Acts 1, verses 1 and 2, sets Christianity apart from all other religions. These other religions, says Stott, regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says that Jesus only began his ministry. Including the quote from Stott, he says, This then is the kind of Christ we believe in. The Jesus of history began his ministry on earth. The Christ of glory has been active through his spirit ever since, according to his promise to be with his people always to the very end of the age. So that's what Acts is about. It's about what Jesus did as the risen and ascended Lord and King of the universe. But what is it for? Why write about that? What is the purpose that the book serves? Well, Luke tells us plainly in the first volume. Remember what we said from Luke 1, 1 1-4. Luke tells Theophilus that he was writing his gospel, as well as the book of Acts, we can now rightly assume, so that Theophilus may have certainty 
regarding what he had been taught. One author puts it this way, Luke is writing to provide reassurance to believers about the nature of the events surrounding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The spread of the message about Jesus and the nature of God's people following Jesus' ascension. So Acts is about the work of God. A work that uniquely commenced in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus. And a work that continues to this very day as he reigns as the king of heaven. So that's why the book is written. But you might ask another question. Why are we preaching Acts? Why are we preaching it now? Well, at least a couple of reasons. One, I want us to have a firm and immovable confidence in the gospel message. And two, I want us to have a firm and immovable sense of our place in this story. We live in a day where, where we, we have, it, it's like a historical amnesia. We can't remember anything that took place more than about ten minutes ago. And we can't see into the future much more than about ten minutes. And so I want you, I want us, Redeemer Baptist Church, to have a rock-solid confidence that these events recorded in this book really happened. That they really are the work of God, and that God really is accomplishing His purposes in the world. That Jesus really is who He says He is. And I want you to know with certainty that for all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, we really are the people of God. And this story that we're going to consider for the next, I don't know, year and a half, is our story. If I could put it another way, I hope that each of us, when we are done with Acts, will be fully persuaded that we are reconciled to God. Acts is always a good book. But given the rapidly deteriorating moral and religious fabric of our society, it seems that we will need, with increasing measure, to be convinced that God loves us and that he is moving all of creation toward its appointed purpose in the Lord Jesus. So I want, to op- I want to open now this text by reading the first five verses, and then we'll outline them and get to work. It's a long introduction, and I'm keeping that in mind going forward, but we did need to cover that. So here's Acts 1, 1 through 5. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit Not many days from now. 
I do want to go ahead and, and offer this before I outline it, uh, that, that all of Acts 1 and 2 serves as Luke's introduction to this book. Uh, what that means is that the next several weeks, probably six even, will be, we will be introducing the main themes that we're going to find in this book. Um, and so there are a variety of, of themes and ideas that Luke uh, unpacks for us throughout this book of Acts. We won't address or even mention all of them this morning, but hopefully by the time we get done with Acts 2, we will be well prepared to meet the various themes and big ideas that Luke has masterfully woven together through this book. Today, there are just three things that I want you to consider with me in this text this morning by way of introduction to the book of Acts. First, in verse 1, we're going to consider the relationship that Luke acts these two, this, these two, this two-volume set has with the Old Testament. What is the relationship that Luke Acts has with the Old Testament? Second, in verses two and three, we will see the centrality of Christ's ministry, namely his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. For the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And third, in verses four and five, we will see the book's focus on the Trinitarian nature of God as fundamental to the mission of God. So, Luke and Acts in the Old Testament, Christ's ministry as inaugurating the kingdom of God and the Trinitarian nature of God as fundamental to the mission of God. Those are our our three big ideas this morning. So look with me in verse 1, where we see Luke direct his reader's attention to his first volume, as I mentioned earlier. But by doing so, he directs our attention even further back to the Old Testament. Now we've already discussed the relationship a bit between Luke and Acts some. But I want to highlight a few more, uh, or a few particular grammatical and theological connections between the two books that are worth noting that serve to underscore the Old Testament background to all that Luke writes. So in Luke 1, 1 through 4, we, as I mentioned earlier, we read that Luke is writing, he's seeking to write an orderly account of the things that had been, what he says, fulfilled among them. Now if something is fulfilled, it must first have been expected, even foretold, we might say. In other words, Luke wants his reader, Theophilus, and us as secondary readers to see that Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and its companion piece, Acts, they, he wants us to see them as the fulfillment of all that was expected in the Old Testament, namely, expected regarding the outworking of God's plan of salvation. Luke not only begins his gospel with the concept of fulfillment, but he also ends his gospel with the concept of fulfillment. Consider what he writes in Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. And here he recounts the words of the resurrected Christ to his apostles. Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Luke in chapter 24 of his gospel summarizes what he had introduced in chapter 1 which we could frame in this question, right? What was it that had been fulfilled among them? He says, Theophilus, I'm writing to you so that you may know with certainty these things that have been fulfilled among us. At the end of his gospel, he then tells us, well, what were the things fulfilled among them? In the words of Jesus, all that Moses and the prophets had spoken about the Christ, namely that he should die and then come back to life so that forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all nations. When Luke therefore opens Acts here in verse 1 with the phrase, in my first book, he connects the message of Acts with the message of salvation that he had begun to describe in his gospel, which labors to reveal how the Old Testament hope of salvation and resurrection were fulfilled in Jesus. And so this book is full of Old Testament quotes and allusions. And the fulfillment of that expectation. So we're going to see that continually worked out. And so that's the first main idea here. Is that Acts cannot rightly be understood without a, a relatively decent and firm grasp on Old Testament hope. Well, secondly, look with me in verses 2 and 3 where we see Luke wants his readers here to grasp the connection between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other. In verses 2 and 3, Luke explicitly mentions Christ's ascension. He says he was taken up. He mentions his resurrection. He presented himself alive to them and his death after his sufferings. He then summarizes in that context, he summarizes Jesus' time on earth between the resurrection and the ascension. And he describes it how? As appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's also worth noting here that there is a double reference made to the kingdom of God at the beginning of this book. There it is in verse 3. You see it also in verse 6, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But then he also makes a double reference to the kingdom of God at the end of the book. In chapter 28, verses 23 and 31. And essentially there, the point is that Paul is in prison at the end of Acts, spoiler alert, But he is proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So twice, four times, right? At the first chapter and the last chapter, the very beginning, the very end of the book, Luke bookends this second volume with references to the kingdom. And so he makes very plain here that the kingdom of God is a central theme that is going to run through this book. 
what the opening verses of Acts foreshadow for us in particular about the kingdom of God is that it is the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus that mark, in particular, in Luke's mind here, the inauguration of the kingdom. And we could add to it all of his life as he had worked out for us in the Gospel of Luke. So his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and as we'll see in Acts 2, with that, the sending of the Spirit, they all together mark the, the, culminating, uh, the culmination of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And I want to consider on that point for a few minutes here the way in which the Old Testament sets this theme up for us. And so we're kind of double-dipping and going back to our first point here about the Old Testament expectation. And we're going to see how these things relate with the kingdom of God here. So a question, it's a rhetorical one, but who was the first human king? Was it not Adam in Genesis chapter 1? Adam, as God's image bearer, we are told in Genesis 1, was given dominion over the whole earth. He was to reign in God's stead and to extend God's ruling presence over all the earth, beginning in Eden in the garden. And he was to expand its borders out to the whole earth earth. That was the task given to this king. But Adam failed in this task. And Adam established not God's kingdom on earth, but man's. And ever since, the city of man and the city of God have been at war. Yet God promised in Genesis 3.15, and then he promised repeatedly to the patriarchs and then to the nation of Israel as a whole, that the kingdom of God, that his kingdom would triumph over the kingdom of man. And he would set his king on his holy hill, on Zion. And his king, excuse me, would rule over the nations. And he would bring blessing to his people and devastating ruin to his detractors. We see that in Psalm 2 in crystal clear expectation. So this yet-to-come divine kingdom is foreshadowed in the kingdom of Israel, which began with Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, If you've read the book of 1 Samuel, you know that Saul is a catastrophic failure. And so it is through his successor David that God promises to establish his kingdom in the earth. By the time of Jesus' life and ministry on the earth, about a thousand years after the life of David, the Jews were in bondage to the Romans, and they were expecting, because of this promise, that the Messiah would come and do what? Liberate them from Roman oppression and bondage. Really, they had expected that with every uh, other nation that had ruled over them. But by the time of Jesus, it was the Romans, and so they expected the Messiah would come and, and drive the Romans out. As we even see in the question posed next week, when, O Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? But what's amazing about this story is that despite David's sins, his outrageous sins, Saul was a catastrophic failure, and in human terms, David didn't do a lot better. And yet, because of the mercy of God, despite David's sins, despite the sins of his posterity, God keeps his promise. And so Jesus, the son of David, 
finally brings about the true inbreaking of God's kingdom and its victory over the kingdom of this world that had been established by Adam in the Garden of Eden at the behest of Satan. And yet, what we are going to find in the book of Acts, what Acts makes plainly clear is that, yes, the kingdom of God is here. It is inaugurated. It is in the world, but it is not fully realized in the world as it one day shall be. This is what you call the already not yet aspect of our theology. The kingdom is already here, but it is not yet here in full. So it's not here, but Acts makes plain. This kingdom, this king, is marching toward the consummation of all things when Christ's enemies are made his footstool. And this, brothers and sisters, has tremendous implications for the people of God. One commentator, Alan Thompson, writes this. He says, God's people may be assured, therefore, that because the Lord Jesus continues to reign, they will be enabled by the Holy Spirit to serve Him and reflect His character. The Word will continue to spread even in the midst of opposition, and local churches will be established and strengthened with the apostolic message about the Lord Jesus. Peter says as much in his sermon at Pentecost, which we'll consider when we get to Acts 2. This is what Peter says. He says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He then quotes from Psalm 110. Verse 1, where David foretells that his coming Lord would sit at the right hand of God until all his enemies were made a footstool. Peter then says in verse 36 of Acts 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The point, therefore, that we need to hold in our hearts, beginning now in Acts 1, extending through the rest of this book and until he returns, is that the kingdom was inaugurated in the earth by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to the throne of God, where he then sent his spirit upon his church. And contrary to the profession of the Romans... There is, in fact, another king besides Caesar. And through his Holy Spirit, Christ is extending his rule to every corner of the earth. Bringing all things in subjection to himself. Some willingly, others unwillingly. So that's the kingdom of God introduced here in the book of Acts. I'm going to look thirdly. And finally, at verses 4 and 5, where we see the nature of God, in particular, His triune nature. And we see how that underlies the mission of God. Jesus tells His disciples this. He says, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but instead, wait. Well, wait for what? Wait, He says, for the promise of the Father, 
that they had heard from Jesus himself that while John had baptized them with water, not many days would pass before they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We noted earlier how John Stott had said that Acts 1, 1 and 2 set Christianity apart from, uh, from all other religions by exclaiming that Christians serve a founder whose active ministry continues to this day long after his time on earth. If that is true, verses 4 and 5 up the ante even more. The significance, as we will see, of the Trinitarian nature of God for the mission of God and therefore His church cannot be overstated. Without Trinitarian theology, the mission of God, and therefore our mission, again, would be devoid of all purpose and power. It is vital that they wait for the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is the necessity of God as triune for bringing about his saving purposes in the world. Here, Luke highlights the manner in which Jesus intends to continue his ministry as the soon to be crowned king of the universe. Luke connects verses 3 and 4, right? He says, He presented himself alive to them. He appeared to them during 40 days. He spoke about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, what? He orders them to wait for the Holy Spirit. In other words, rightly understanding the kingdom is going to require a reception of the Spirit. Jesus says this to Nicodemus in John 3, right? That without being born again which comes by the Spirit, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So I want to talk more about the sending of the Spirit and His reception in the weeks to come, but I want to highlight this very simple point that we'll only discuss briefly here, but I want to just highlight it now. And here's a question. Have you reckoned with the reality that God is not a monad. What is a monad? Well, a, the idea of it, one being, one person, God exists in community. He exists as Trinity. And here we see all members of the Trinity. There is one God, and yet that one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons or subsistences of that one being. God exists in community, and here's the the point that I want to make now about this for us, for Acts. God exists as community, and by pouring out His Spirit upon the church, as Peter says he did in Acts 2, God has welcomed His people into that community fellowship. So do you consciously Embrace the Trinitarian nature of your faith. If not, my prayer is that you will have a greater desire and a greater ability to do so as we march through this wonderful book. This book that calls upon us to embrace and receive God's triune work of grace. 
Brothers and sisters, God has made us, as we will see in the weeks to come, a kingdom of priests joined to Christ who is the true temple of the Holy Spirit where God's Spirit dwells. My friends, if you believe in Christ, God has made his home with you. Let us exult in such a privilege. Well, in conclusion, consider with me what these opening verses proclaim to the people of God. All that we have hoped for since Genesis 3 was in fact coming true. Jesus is who he says he is. He really did bring the kingdom of God. He really is redeeming Israel from all his sins. From all her sins. The kingdom of God didn't come in the way that we imagined. It came through a shameful death on a bloody cross. But it has come. And here is the proof. Jesus is alive and well. And he reigns now as our king. So what does that mean for us? Well, first, we are to believe this message. So let me ask, do you believe it? Do you believe in this Christ who died to rescue sinners like you from the just desert of your sin and to bring them into this kingdom of light? Do you believe that this good news is actually offered to you? If you will believe, if you don't already, you will be saved. Perhaps a word to to our young people here. Perhaps you have heard this message, this gospel message, every single day of your life from your loving parents and elders and, and all of us here at church, but you have not taken it home. You've not brought it to heart to believe it and to cherish it. I invite you, encourage you to do that. Do that now. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait another day. Don't wait till next week, till you can drive or you've gone to college or whatever. Look to Jesus, who is the King of Heaven. So if you've not believed in Christ, old or young, I pray that you would. But if you do, if you do believe this gospel message, will you hold fast to it with me? Would you hold fast to it that you might have certainty regarding what you have been taught, what we have been taught? Will you embrace the Lord Jesus once more this day for your soul's eternal good? And will you remember that your king has come? And thank God he is coming again.